This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Oxford University Press, which has loads of great titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America by Kevin Matson. The 1980s produced some of the most creative works of punk rock, not just the music of bands like the Minutemen and the Dead Kennedys, but also visual arts, literature, poetry, and film. Historian and co-founder of DC's Positive Force, Kevin Matson, documents how widespread the punk movement became, recounting its anarchism, DIY ethos, and art of dissent. As Samuel Zip wrote in The Nation about Matson's book, Punks tried both unruly provocation and grassroots community building. The noise they unleashed still reverberates today, waiting to set off future provocation from people and places as yet unknown. We're not here to entertain. Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America by Kevin Matson, Out now from Oxford University Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Cryptocurrency may not be currency. Indeed, as we discussed in last week's episode, it is a speculative asset. But it does have roots in an old neoliberal dream to create private money and break the state's fiat money monopoly. The politicization and depoliticization of money has long been central to the history of capitalism. Amid the economic crises and inflation of the 1970s, money was repoliticized. And, as I discussed with Tim Barker this past summer, capital won the fight that ensued, with the Volkershock raising interest rates and crushing labor militancy. From that conflict, the neoliberal order emerged. And one of its leading prophets, economist Friedrich Hayek, called for the creation of private money to wrest the entirety of the economy from state control. This fantastical dream did not become a reality, though the massive private credit that emerged to smooth over decades of wage stagnation and rising inequality ultimately performed a similar function. Once neoliberalism was in place, the appearance of money was again depoliticized. Money, of course, never stops being political a state of affairs that prevailed for decades until the financial crisis of 2008. In reality, it was a period when money was de-democratized. The economic crisis then pulled back the veil, subjecting money once again to widespread debate and open politics. That crisis and the response to it made it clear to everyone that money was indeed political and proved both that central banks possessed enormous power and that international finance operated way outside the confines of any particular state's power. Most of us couldn't see it at the time, but in retrospect, we now know that the rise of cryptocurrency was one of the most significant responses to the repoliticization of money that erupted throughout Obama's time in office. Crypto has recently, of course, been making a lot of rich people a lot richer, and it's been dominating much of the renewed public debate over the global future of money. But it need not, and it shouldn't. Today, there are once again calls on the left to actually democratize the global monetary constitution. 
from demands for a new Bread and Woods project to flirtations with Keynes's original Bancor proposal, we can witness attempts to think through what it would mean to democratize finance and money. If Hayek continues to provide inspiration for the crypto community's vision of privatized money, we can recover visions for a democratic refounding of the global monetary system in the demands put forward by third-worldist leaders in the late 1970s in the wake of the new international economic order and amid the Latin American debt crisis. This is my interview with political theorist Stefan Eich, episode two of our two-part series on cryptocurrency. This is a wide-ranging discussion of the politico-ideological predecessors and political-ideological reality of cryptocurrency. If you have not yet listened to last week's episode and you don't have a great handle on what cryptocurrency is, I do recommend that you listen to that first. Before we get this show started, it is Christmas time and The Dig is the podcast gift that keeps on giving every week. Well, almost every week. We are taking next week off. But if you listen to The Dig, if you depend on The Dig for absurdly in-depth analysis of everything, please give us a gift at patreon.com slash the dig. In exchange, we will send you our weekly newsletter by email. And if you contribute $10 or more a month, we will send you a book or books, a coffee mug, or a tote bag with The Dig logo. Then, me, you, all of us, we will be in a reciprocal gift-giving relationship, and such relationships are incredibly strong. Please take a moment to contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I do really appreciate it. And once again, we are taking next week off. If you run out of dig episodes to listen to, you probably actually haven't run out of dig episodes to listen to. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Thank you. And here is Stefan Eich, a professor of government at Georgetown University, where he teaches and writes on the political theory of money and financial capitalism. His book, The Currency of Politics, The Political Theory of Money from Aristotle to Keynes, is coming out with Princeton University Press in May 2022. He is also the co-editor of a Stanford University Press book series on Currencies, New Thinking for Financial Times. I also put a link to Stefan's chapter on cryptocurrency in the show notes. It is what prompted me to do this episode, and it's very much worth you giving it a read. Stefan Eich, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to start this interview with the same question that I began my last interview on crypto with. What is cryptocurrency and is it actually currency? Let me begin with the second part. <laughs> cryptocurrency, you know, the Bitcoin variant, um, Ether that kind of might come into people's mind is currently not currency, I think. If we want to understand what crypto is, I think at this point we kind of have to break it down a little bit because the term has become a bit of an umbrella term that covers a lot of very different things. So I would want to distinguish between the classical cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, when people think of. Secondly, you know, broader blockchain-based you know, applications, tokens that you know you might not necessarily initially think of as cryptocurrencies, but that definitely operate in a similar technology space. And then thirdly, what has come to be known as stable coins. 
Now, of these three, despite the fact that the first one is usually called cryptocurrencies, you know, I don't think that is a currency. I think the second one isn't a currency. Now, the third one comes probably closest to functioning as a currency, but it also drops some of the characteristics like full decentralization, the idea that it is simply kind of solved through cryptography without any other assets backing it, but that's gone in the case of stable coins. Um, but they nonetheless operate in the same kind of crypto space. And when you hear people talking about crypto, cryptocurrencies, sometimes they refer to quite different things. But I think those three categories probably capture the bulk. And then before we move on, I should probably ask, what is currency? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, that, that's going to be the next hour. So usually when people think of currency, at least when economists do, kind of monetary theorists, they think of the kind of material embodiment of money, physical tokens that are being used to kind of settle debts in a certain, you know, um, monetary unit. Now, you can immediately see why that's, that can't possibly be the case for Bitcoin, because it's, there is no physical token that changes hands. So more broadly, I think it refers to a kind of, you know, money of account that is being used to, um, you know, pay for things uh, as a unit of, ex- of account, as a medium of exchange, as a store of value. And so in that sense, it actually looks more like what you know, monetary economists would call money or money of account, um, rather than currency as the physical cash part of currency. Now, I, I say this could take us an hour because I think that's how economists have looked at money and currency, and that's how they would recognize these two terms. But there is actually work by you know, those of us thinking about money, not from the perspective of economics, but let's say political theory like myself, who are trying to rethink what these categories could mean. And so when I um, speak of currency in the context of debates of the political theory of money, I actually want to you know, emphasize that I'm not really interested in the cash aspect of it, but currency as the kind of money of account that um, that we use, we as some kind of collective that has to be defined in order to you know, settle questions of collective value, monetary rule, and so on. So that will also move us away from the physical side of currency and probably look a lot more like what an economist might call money of account. If cryptocurrency is so obviously not a currency, but rather a, a speculative asset, why then is the insistence that it is a currency so important to cryptocurrency's legitimation? Because you, you write, quote, I propose that cryptocurrencies are suspended between two contradictory goals, a radical political attempt to depoliticize the appearance of money and a seductive use of cryptocurrencies as speculative assets beyond the regulatory grasp of monetary and fiscal authorities. Is that contradiction that you identify a coincidence or is it more fundamental to what crypto is? Or maybe put slightly differently, is this contradictory relationship between actual cryptocurrency, the speculative asset, and mystified crypto- cryptocurrency, the liberatory currency, is that is that hypocritical or is it more symptomatic, a feature instead of a bug? So the first thing to notice is that things have changed a lot. So five years ago, 10 years ago, when cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin first appeared, it wasn't entirely obvious that it would become a speculative asset, which I think is a pretty uncontroversial position now. And the the piece from which you quote was written two, three years ago. So it came out um, summer 2019. So I've kind of written, I wrote it over 2018, 
first half of 2019. And I, I thought at that point we were at a juncture where it was kind of becoming visible that this functioned primarily as a speculative asset. And nonetheless, a lot of the legitimizing tactics were continuously drawing on an older, older, that is two or three years older image of currency. So if you go back to the very beginning um, of, you know, Bitcoin and, and, and those kind of cryptocurrencies, you know, which emerged um, during the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, they presented themselves as the money of the future, as currencies, not as speculative assets. And if you look at all their self-presentations from the original white paper to all the kind of Bitcoin uh, fan groups that popped up, the kind of Bitcoin investors that emerged, the other kind of cryptocurrencies that popped up in the subsequent years, all of them emphasized that this was a big thing because this would be the money of the future. Now, I think that has changed completely. If you look at, you know, crypto ads that are running, you know, on TV now, if you look at the way in which um, investors are talking about crypto, very, very few of them actually think genuinely that it will be the money of the future. I think it's a really interesting asset that has gone up, you know, something like five, six thousand percent in the last in the last five, six years, right? So you can see why why they're interested in it as an asset. It's a really weird asset because it's entirely uncorrelated with any other economic activity. And so that's that's kind of what's driving the current boom. And we're left with the remnant of the 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 shell, the label, cryptocurrency. There's still some out there who kind of of the belief that this will shape the money of the future. But the primary function of it, I think, currently is a regulatory one. Right? Like the way in which this kind of gap between the outward appearance, the name cryptocurrency, and the actual speculative activity that's happening plays out is that it, it protects you against some of the kind of <laughs> fiercest forms of securities regulations that are out there because currencies are regulated in an entirely different manner than financial securities. So, you know, in terms of the taxes you would have to pay, it took years to even have cryptocurrencies on the radar of the IRS. In terms of the kind of market behavior that's tolerated or banned, we're still very, very far removed from the kind of regulations that apply for any other kind of financial security. Or like some of the kind of pump and dump schemes that are, you know, very widespread in crypto, you know, they would, all these people would be in jail if they tried to do this with any other kind of security. But they're able to do this because the currency label actually protects them from some of the kind of really tough securities regulation that's out there. Now, again, the story of the last year, maybe a couple of months, weeks, days is that regulators have woken up to this and are kind of very quickly catching up to the fact that if you look at it and strip away the label, this looks like a financial asset. It behaves like a financial asset. It's advertised as a financial asset. So it probably should be treated by regulatory authorities as a financial asset, right? And that's, I think, even more pronounced when you look at what's happening in China, what's happening in the Eurozone, what's happening in India most recently. But, but it's also on the radar of the SEC more than it was a couple of years ago. So that's, I think, the productive power of holding on to the currency label, despite the fact that you might no longer believe that it will be the money of the future. Do you think that it might play a more diffuse ideological role as well, this popular commitment to thinking it's a currency? Like, I get why cryptocurrency corporations, exchanges, scammer, Twitch influencers doing pump and dump schemes, why they, for regulatory purposes, would want to commit to it being a currency. But does the popular commitment to thinking of it as a currency, does that do something too? 
Well, I'm not so sure. I think there might be two groups that are worth distinguishing or two effects worth distinguishing. On the one hand, what is absolutely crucial, I think, to the way in which this kind of filters down into actual, you know, small scale investors is the idea that this is a kind of low entry cost potential lottery ticket to get rich. This is, I mean, in that sense, I, I've, I sometimes joke that it reminds me a lot of kind of this 18th century obsession with lottery tickets and all these kind of various, you know, annuities and lotteries that you kind of purchase a, a ticket for. There was a lot of fraud in those. And, you know, eventually you might get rich. It's not entirely clear to me that currency plays much of a role there, right? That currency, the association with kind of stability, the kind of universal exchange, that, that seems to play very little role in the idea of, this is kind of your ticket out. You know, you kind of, you you, you buy some uh, unknown token and in five years time, you're going to be one of these, you know, millionaires, billionaires, because you, you had the faith and believed in this project. I don't think currency is doing much, much labor there. Maybe the way in which um, it does perform some work is in the sense that it gives you a narrative of why this might have value, why this is not just simply gambling. Or like, if you think this is simply an activity where something, you know, is turned into a lottery and you're perfectly aware that you're participating in a lottery and you're aware that, you know, there's a very small chance that you will win. Or if you think of it as a, you know, a form of gambling, like the casino, where you're aware that, you know, the house wins overall, but you're going to have a fun time. That's a very different narrative from saying like, this will work out for me because I'm adopting the future. Like I'm adopting the currency of the future and I get rewarded for being a kind of early adopter, being an, a believer in this project. And so that's, I think, how it continues to perform some ideological work of providing a narrative of why what you're doing isn't just simply gambling and isn't just simply gambling in a way that's stacked. But, but you are small scale, you know, early tech adopter, maybe even entrepreneur, you are participating in the future. Am I right to think that the rise of NFTs on the one hand and stable coins on the other really compounds this contradiction because NFTs cannot pretend to be anything other than speculative assets. They're basically crypto coins that are no longer pretending to do that, I guess. Meanwhile, stable coins just brazenly rely on the value of fiat currency for their own value. Yeah, I like I like that image. This is kind of two forms of purification going on here that are kind of working at the dissolving of the cryptocurrency term, which obviously can't hold all these contradictions together. So on the one hand, you get the kind of pure embrace of the speculative activity in the form of NFTs, um, you know, which in some way, yeah, like looks like gambling, but you know, like much of the art market, that's, that's exactly what's going on. You know, there's no asset that somehow backs the value of an Andy Warhol print. But it's a weird combination of limited supply, fashion, and an expectation of a future exchange value, um, you know, as well as a history of appreciation, right? So the NFT development perfectly embraces this. And as a result, also, it gets a lot of flag because <laughs> it just, you know, can't protect itself against claims that this is simply speculative activity and not just speculative, but speculative waste, as I'm sure we're going to talk about. If you look at, on the other hand, like the term cryptocurrency dissolves towards an actual idea of turning it into currency by shedding some of the elements of cryptography and decentralization when it becomes a project of stable coins. 
So I think actually that's a nice image of how precisely because the contradiction inherent in cryptocurrency, you see these two more recent development that are kind of trying to hold on to at least a coherent image of what's going on. Yeah. Is an NFT of bad art any more absurd <laughs> than the concept of a banana taped to the wall with duct tape that sold for just a ton of money a few years ago in Miami? Yeah. And you see, you see actually, like I've, I've been... In the last couple of weeks, kind of uh, in anticipation of our conversation, I've been kind of reading up on what exactly the kind of ideological space looks like. You know, what what do the people who are putting money into NFTs, crypto, stable coins say? You know, and it, I was struck by how much it has changed from the last time I looked at it. But the last time I looked at it, everything from the Winklevoss twins to you know small scale investors, everyone was believed they are participating in creating the money of the future. Now you find a lot of you know, people who pour serious money into this, straightforwardly comparing this to art. You know, they're saying this, this is the art market. Like we're kind of diversifying our portfolio by adding these kind of exotic, non-conventional assets in here, just the same way in which we diversified by, you know, buying weird assets like wine and art beforehand. That's, that's what we're doing. That's why we believe in it. It's not going to change the world. It's not the money of the future, but it's really interesting for us as a hedge fund. You know, you, you'll find a lot of that stuff out there that didn't exist like three, four years ago. You write, quote, cryptocurrencies are frequently framed as future oriented technological innovations that decentralize money, thereby liberating it from centralized governance and the political tentacles of the state. And I want to I want to take this piece by piece. And you've touched on this a bit already. But what do you mean by cryptocurrency having a future orientation and why is that future orientation important? Yeah, so again, this this begins with the ideological facade. When you kind of look at the white paper behind Bitcoin, when you look at some of the early adopters behind some of the more dominant cryptocurrencies, you do find the kind of firm belief that this is not just a kind of interesting cryptographic puzzle or project, but this is a bite of the future, They're, that you're dealing with a new technology or at least a new use of an existing technology that will fundamentally shape, as the white paper articulates, all forms of economic exchange, because it will provide a new form of money for the future. I think that was absolutely central for the way this took off, um, in particular in the context of the financial crisis, right? So the initial Bitcoin comes out in, in the winter of 2008. It's in the wake of massive bank bailouts. It's the same context that kind of produces Occupy on the left. And it's fueled by distrust in both the existing banking system and the existing you know, um, state and central banking system that turned out to be, you know, as every, everyone who works on this would have known beforehand, deeply involved and enmeshed with the banking system. And it's against that background that a kind of new view, a kind of completely open-ended vista of the future of money is opened up. Right? This is this is portraying itself, or it was portraying itself, as a radical break with that existing monetary system in which banks and central banks had a crucial role to play. Instead, you get this idea of an a decentralized form of money that is leaving behind all old forms of trust, either trust in your bank, trust in your bank regulator, trust in your central bank, trust in your political system. None of that will be needed anymore because in that future that we're kind of promising, 
money will be decentralized and beyond trust. So I think the rupture is crucial and the rupture requires you to have this kind of sketch of the future. You write, quote, there is nothing inherent in blockchain technology that rules out centralization, regulatory oversight, or democratic governance. Nor is there anything in cryptocurrencies that would prevent them from becoming appendices to the global shadow banking system. Unsurprisingly, both central banks and commercial banks have already developed blockchain protocols that combine a decentralized ledger with the possibility of centralized oversight and control. In either case, whatever scenario will emerge does not depend on technological inevitabilities, but on political acquiescence and ultimately questions of power. What sort of inherent attributes do people project onto blockchain as a technology, and and why? And to what extent is the fetishization of blockchain as a technology central to crypto ideology more, more generally? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's exactly linked to your previous question about the future, right? So what provides the thrust, the kind of catalyst for this future is the idea that you're operating on the back of a radical new technology that suddenly makes that future possible and inevitable and is your, you know, um, your guide towards this future. Again, the article was written um, a a few years ago. And I I think it's fair to say that most of that turned out to be on target because as has become clear, abundantly clear, that technology is not at all wedded to this specific social political vision, but is instead entirely promiscuous to various, you know, radically divergent political projects. And so, you know, that, that seems like an obvious point to anyone who's interested in kind of science and technology studies and interested in kind of history of technology. But again, it goes back to the gap between the kind of ideological cover that really provided a lot of fuel for the project in the initial years and the way it has played out since. Right? So it was extremely important, I think, initially to portray this technology as new and to portray the project as deeply tied in an inevitable manner to that technology, right? Like it was the idea that somehow once this is out in the world, you can't undo it. And it comes with all these very specific social and political implications. As a result, there's no point in somehow holding it back or regulating or any of that stuff because it would be akin to kind of undoing the discovery of the neutron or so, you know, like that's, that's the way in which I think this was initially framed. Now, when you take a very different look at technology, right, much more from the perspective of science and technology studies and realize that the technology is itself is, you know, a canvas on which we can project different, you know, visions. Now, it still is embedded in structures of power, right, and you can kind of make predictions of which scenario is more or less likely to play out, but that has nothing to do with some kind of deterministic drive inherent to the technology, but more to do with the kind of you know, social, economic, political space in which that technology is deployed and unfolds. And so I thought it was fair to say, as we've now, now witnessed, that central banks stand in an ambiguous relationship to this and that they would likely respond by taking on their own you know, blockchain-based digital um, money projects, not by embracing decentralization, but by issuing what's now called you know, central bank digital currencies, um, which you know, some of them already exist. Uh, Barbados has, has won out already. Um, Canada, Sweden, like a, lot of, a lot of countries are 
very close to, to launching theirs. And so you can see how the same technology can produce a very different uh, political vision. The other thing to kind of pick up before we move on is that this idea of an inevitable technological change was deeply tied to the idea that this new form of money would be not just beyond trust, but beyond politics. I think that was absolutely crucial. And it was able to make that claim because it tied it to the inevitability of a certain technological change. You know? So anything that didn't fit that picture, such as, for example, I mean, when I first started to get interested in this, for the volume in which this, this chapter um, we're talking about appeared, we organized two conferences where we invited um, you know, lawyers, social theorists, political theorists, but also computer scientists. And the first thing the computer scientist told us is like, this is an old technology. Like this has been around since the 1980s. You know, we just thought it had no uses. And so, you know, it's very interesting to see it applied in this manner, but this is not at all, you know, a new technology, nor is it a technology that inevitably has to be deployed in this way, right? They could think of lots of other uses already. And so that, that kind of knowledge, which actually existed among computer scientists, couldn't be part of the kind of outward appearance, which had to commit to this inevitable technological thrust into the future, because the vision and claim of a money beyond politics was tied to that technological determinism. It's interesting, because I think we conventionally counterpose technology or contrast technology to nature. But if a technology is seen to have inevitable political and economic outcomes, then it seems more like nature. And so outside of the realm of human social and political contingency and contestation. I, I think that's exactly the the kind of, I think, attempting conclusion to draw from many folks, you know, in Silicon Valley culture, in the kind of early Bitcoin culture, that what they're doing is unleashing the somehow natural energies. They're, they're, they're in the process of discoveries that cannot be undone. And as a result, any attempt of something as small-minded as democratic politics to kind of constrain them or meddle with them is simply misplaced. You know, that's that's the kind of, I think, ideological structure we're dealing with here, in which technology is portrayed akin to nature rather than a social uh, product. Keep your third eye open, listeners. Let's turn to the historical argument that you make, which is about, quote, three periods. First, an initial phase of the politicization of money, 1973 to 1979, followed by the emergence of a global politics of disinflation that came to be hailed as the Great Moderation, 1980 to 2008, and finally, our current period in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, which revealed the fragility of many of the presumptions of the Great Moderation and returned us to the unresolved questions of the 1970s, 2008 to present. Before we get to that first period, though, what accounted for that depoliticized status of money up until the crises of the 1970s? I wouldn't say that um, money was depoliticized before the 1970s quite in the same manner in which um, it was depoliticized during the 90s and 2000s. I think what's fair to say is that it had a kind of settled political status that could easily be taken for granted and as such, you know, might fairly be described as having a kind of depoliticized, you know, appearance, but that to anyone involved, certainly those who are kind of deeply embedded in it, was obviously a political construct. And what I'm talking to about here is the Bretton Woods settlement. 
Right. So it's the Bretton Woods settlement that emerges out of World War II, you know, this kind of famous monetary conference in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, 1944, with on the one hand, um, John Maynard Keynes, and on the other hand, Harry Dexter White as the US representative negotiating and producing a kind of post-war monetary order. Well, that monetary order is absolutely political. In fact, it, it was you know, one of the you know, most difficult international conferences probably concerning the post-war order because it brings all these questions of domestic finance and economies, international finance, um, international relations and welfare politics. All of that is part of the, this, this settlement because it touches on all these different aspects. And Keynes didn't want the dollar to be the global reserve currency, right? No, I think the, we can get deeper into Bretton Woods. Keynes loses out in the Bretton Woods negotiations. He brings a couple of influential blueprints to the table, but I would argue in most you know, significant respects, you know, he basically loses out against the US blueprint. So in his proposal, there was no role of gold, though he was happy to entertain it for kind of nostalgic reasons or aesthetic reasons. He could understand how kind of lesser minds could kind of be preoccupied with this. But in his preferred scheme, there was no room for gold. It also didn't have the dollar as the kind of global reserve currency, but instead a new international uh, reserve currency unit. He went through a phase in which he kind of tried to, every day he kind of come up with a new name. He kind of asked readers for new names. There's some great kind of proposals out there from Orp to Dolphin to all kind of, in the end, he settled on Bancor, which was meant to be a pun on the bank of, uh, the gold of banks in French despite the fact that there's no gold. So it's kind of a Keynesian joke, but he loses out in this respect. So instead what emerges is a kind of deeply political construct that reflects the kind of new hegemonic role of the US as it emerges out of World War II. It insists on the US dollar as the kind of pivotal reserve currency of the entire Bretton Woods block. It ties the dollar to gold, right? which at that point to a significant extent, is lying in the vaults of the New York Fed and Fort Knox, right? So it's kind of moved from Europe to the US. Um, and it ties all other existing uh, participating currencies to the US dollar. Now, that's obviously a deeply political construct. But for someone living through the 50s and 60s, you could have been struck or not struck by the way in which kind of monetary policy, both internationally and domestically, was kind of fairly absent, right? Like central banks didn't have the same you know, political dominance and centrality as they have for us today again, since um, the financial crisis. The Bretton Woods Conference essentially was not accompanied by a series of subsequent international conferences over crises. You know, it was a very short-lived system, not least because of the shortcomings it had and the ways in which it refused to incorporate Keynes's original blueprint. But by and large, you know, it, it managed to avoid um, crises for much of the 1950s and 60s. And when the crises did appear, it had some tools available to initially contain them. So that meant for, you know, let's say a political, a political theorist, you know, let's say John Rawls, you, know, you, could, you could talk about money and the dollar without having to think of it as a kind of open political question. It seemed kind of settled um, to outsiders. And so rather than calling it kind of depoliticized in the way in which we might want to think about the kind of politics of depoliticization of the 1980s and 90s, it seemed more like a settled political status that could be taken for granted. And then, of course, it became unsettled. What, what was the crisis of stagflation that exploded in the 1970s, and how did it repoliticize money? 
Well, it's the, the crisis um, of the Bretton Woods system predates stagflation. So again, to some extent, this, this goes back to you know, fundamental design flaws that characterized it from the very beginning. It took until 1958 for Bretton Woods to become operational in the first place. Somewhere Keynes, you know, who passed away in 1946, almost hoped it would never become operational at some point. But when it does become operational, it kind of very quickly becomes obvious that there are some fundamental tensions concerning not least the dual role of the US dollar, which simultaneously has to serve as the you know, currency for one country and the global reserve currency. And so it exposes the US government and the Federal Reserve to kind of conflictual mandates about how to navigate that space. And that becomes more and more pressing and obvious in the course of the 1960s, as there are kind of the first bouts of inflation, as the Vietnam War begins to absorb more and more resources. These kind of fundamental contradictions become harder and harder to ignore. There is an attempt in the late 60s to introduce a kind of belated, very weak kind of sibling of Keynes's bank core into that existing system in the form of special drawing rights, SDRs, but they really fail to tackle it in a, in a meaningful manner. They're, they're much too small. It's very hard to kind of improve that system from, from within at that point. And so this kind of slowly comes to a head until in um, the course of 1971, Nixon, who has his eyes on re-election, essentially refuses to continue to play that hegemonic game of, you know, navigating these conflicting mandates with an eye towards the world economy and the Bretton Woods system. And essentially it says, you know, enough of this kind of perceived sacrifice on our part for a monetary system that doesn't seem to be working, that doesn't seem to be in our interest. You know, we're just going to cut through this entire Gordian knot and, you know, liberate our economic policies. Now, a lot of that is kind of campaign rhetoric, you know, through the, through the tapes, we kind of, we, we know what, went on at least in, in uh, his conversations there. But the idea is to kind of replace an image of kind of American hegemonic sacrifice with a new sketch of, you know, ebullience and, and dominance on the international scene. Nixon's uh, treasury secretary at the time famously quips that the dollar might be our currency, but it's your problem. And he's talking there to his kind of European allies and, and others were kind of completely surprised by Nixon's decision in August 71 to close the gold window and thereby essentially unravel the Bretton Woods system. Let's talk about the star of the story you tell, neoliberal economist Friedrich Hayek, and how he interpreted the crises of the 70s. You write, quote, blaming the inflation on epistemological hubris, Hayek launched a fundamental challenge to Keynesian national welfareism and placed stable money at the heart of his liberalism. For Hayek, quote, Economic crisis and inflation were a result of, and you're quoting Hayek here, the exclusion of the most important regulator of the market mechanism, money, from itself being regulated by the market process. Why did Hayek think that the so-called market control of money could make money something that he, as an aside, called in his famous book, The Road to Serfdom, called it, quote, one of the greatest instruments of freedom ever invented by man? Why did he think that so-called market control of money could make money stable and less prone to inflation. And how did that relate to his broader critique of Keynesianism as this hubristic attempt to manage market forces that could only communicate prices clearly if left unmolested by government control? Yeah, so the first thing, we're a couple of years later now. So this is, we've moved on to 74. This is quoting from Hayek's famous 
um, speech at the kind of Stockholm Nobel Academy, where he receives the 1974 um, Nobel Memorial Prize alongside um, Myrdal. That's uh, famed Swedish social democratic economist Gunnar Myrdal. Gunnar Myrdal, exactly. So we're now in the context of sustained inflation, you know, really quite unprecedented uh, peacetime experience. Um, we really have to go back quite a long way to find anything that remotely looks like the kind of inflationary shock of the 1970s. Moreover, as you already mentioned, it's associated with you know, unemployment and what comes to be known as stagflation um, rather than a kind of inflationary boom. So it's in that context that Hayek steps in and radicalizes both his previous rhetoric and his previous position. So I think what's important to recognize here is that Hayek actually changes his mind on this in, the, in this mid-1970s moment. So he had previously, throughout the 1950s and early 60s, kind of made a kind of begrudging peace with this kind of post-war political settlement that we talked about. You know, he was clearly not a, not a fan of it, but he thought there was no way around essentially the role of central banks in a modern monetary economy, right? Like as much as you might um, have a nostalgic idea of the gold standard, as much as you think that Keynes was wrong in you know, the treatise on money in 1930, as much as you kind of disagreed with Keynes in the 1930s subsequently, somehow Hayek made, you know, his peace might be a little bit too much, but he kind of accepted at least for the moment, the post-war settlement. That changes in the 1970s when he gradually, you know, he becomes radicalized and he radicalizes himself by essentially um, arguing that the position he had put forward concerning the role of the market as a supremely efficient kind of information gatherer was something that did not only not require a central bank to function, but that a central bank operated by a state was an impediment to that vision. And that's quite a substantial U-turn to his own position, not that long uh, beforehand. So by the 70s, in the face of inflation, Hayek begins to argue that you should extend the same logic that he has developed for all other markets to the regulator of the market itself, namely money. And so the idea here is, you know, it's kind of, from that moment, it's kind of quite straightforward. We should talk about whether it was ever actually meant as a kind of earnest proposal or kind of, again, like a ideological kind of vanguard move um, on Hayek's part. But the idea is essentially you transplant your faith in the ability of competition to produce efficient, stable results, right, which is at the heart of, of Hayek's position, to money itself. Right? And so Hayek in the work that he does in the years after the Nobel Prize, which, by the way, gives him an enormous boost in prestige, right? He is essentially pretty irrelevant by the beginning of 74. Like, by 75, he's a global celebrity on the back of that Nobel Prize. So he begins to um, sketch proposals for how the market could come to the rescue of the existing kind of central bank-led fiat money system. And that exists primarily as he articulates in um, a pamphlet he publishes with a kind of London libertarian think tank in 1976 on the denationalization of money in having competing private currencies and allowing the market and the competition between these private currencies to produce the stability 
that we, including Hayek himself, previously thought we need a central bank to ensure. So like in the market itself, it's competition here that's meant to produce stability and value, right? And so Hayek's idea seems to be that somehow a bank issuing its own private currency, but then overextending it would somehow be punished by the market and either go out of business or, you know, witness some kind of, you know, it's, it's notes trading at a discount. And so competition will come to, to save us. By contrast, Gunnar Myrdal supported third world countries' call to respond to these crises of the 70s by creating a new international economic order, or NIEO, something that I discussed at length a while back with Adam Getachew, an interview that I'll, I'll link to along with others that I referenced in the show notes. How did Myrdal's diagnosis of what was wrong with money at the time differ from that of Hayek? I mean, pretty big differences. But what were the basic analytical or ideological factors that accounted for those differences? The first, I think, observation um, that's worth making, in particular given where we're coming from this conversation, is like notice how widely open the kind of monetary imagination is at that point. Right? So, so we've moved into a world of fiat money, a world in which it is the kind of word, promise, credibility, tax revenue of the state that guarantees money. No amount of gold at Fort Knox, but instead, you know, politics essentially, that steps in here. And we're in a moment of inflation on top of that. And you witness an extraordinarily productive, deeply conflictual kind of struggle over that monetary imagination, where Hayek's contribution is only one among many on the kind of libertarian right. And we can find, um, you know, very different alternative conceptions of what the future of money should look like, what the politics of money should look like when we turn to the left. And Myrdal, I think, is a, it's a helpful narrative device, and not least because they shared the 1974 Nobel Prize, which was itself an act of compromise on the part of the committee. You can actually kind of sketch a connection from Myrdal to efforts on the part of the global south, not just to redesign the global kind of trading system and the kind of global commodities exchange system, as I, the NIO did, but also to kind of demands on the part of the global south to restructure the global monetary constitution, right? To kind of go back to the drawing board now after Bretton Woods has collapsed and we are living in the ruins of Bretton Woods and make good on the kind of promises that were either never fulfilled or, you know, emerged in the meantime, not least because during the Bretton Woods conference, you know, Basically, most member states of the United Nations in the 1970s did not yet exist because of decolonization, right? So there is an attempt to kind of go back and have an almost another Bretton Woods-style conference, but now with all the recently decolonized countries actually sitting at the table. And there are calls to actually convene a United Nations um, General Assembly that would focus on the global monetary constitution. There are attempts to kind of think through the politics of welfare and inflation on that global scale. I think that's the place where Murdahl fits in as someone who is similarly interested in the crisis of the national welfare state that had provided the background for the 1950s and 60s. But unlike Hayek, who wants to, wants to undo this you know, perceived Keynesian nationalist welfare project, Murdell is much more interested in actually kind of extending it to the global realm of kind of having a more global conception of welfare. And that obviously goes hand in hand with 
a redesigning of the monetary constitution that has to be global this time. It has to include the G77. So that's how I would fit Murdahl in here. And he is kind of, you know, actively participating in these conversations. He's he's part of um, attempts on the part of uh, the G77, both before and after the NIO, to rethink through the monetary dimension of this broader crisis. And initially, you're right that the NIO wasn't focused so much on monetary policy. But by the end of the 1970s, that had changed because inflation. We, and we always think of inflation of that time in the U.S., I think, pretty readily in terms of how it changed the U.S. economy and U.S. politics. But the global South was hit even harder. How did inflation impact the third world? And then how did the political and economic powers that be in the capitalist core transform that crisis into a sovereign debt crisis on the periphery? Okay, so that's not the entire 1970s uh, in front of us. I can't, I can't speak in much detail to how inflation exactly articulated itself in the global South. But it is true that the inflation is not just a phenomenon of the global North, but it did affect the global South. I think the crucial thing that informs thinking about global economic reform after the NIO, so the NIO is past 1974, exactly at the same time as kind of Hayek and Murdala are both kind of giving their speeches in Stockholm. But what happened since then is that the, the monetary dimension really comes to dominate the discussion and the perception of the crisis, you know, in the way that the NIO, I think, was much more rooted in older conversations going back to kind of Bandung and the kind of 50s and 60s about fair commodities trade and the kind of balance of trade questions that are associated with that. In the course of the 70s, that I think merges gradually towards an awareness of the kind of pressing monetary crisis that affects both the global north and the global south. And I think what's so interesting here and what's picked up on immediately by countries and finance ministers in the global south is that this might actually constitute a unique opportunity that's quite different from the NIO, because the NIO is essentially a distributional struggle. That's what makes it so interesting for us to look at because we encounter, you know, debates over global distribution questions. We encounter, you know, struggles over the balance. The terms of trade. Exactly. That's that's what makes it so exciting. But these are quite explicitly kind of, you know, not zero sum, but they are kind of, you know, struggles that produce winners and losers. Right? There's a clear sense of the global north having benefited illegitimately from kind of certain beneficial, you know, um, neo-colonial terms of trade and undoing those would clearly redistribute some of the gains of trade. And that's on the one hand attractive, but it also quickly comes to be seen as a major obstacle to why the NIO doesn't quite take off, like why the global north, in particular the US, you know, reacts with the kind of like vicious animosity as it does, right? Because they have a lot to lose and they're very aware of that. What happens in the second half of the 70s is that global monetary reform emerges, at least in the minds of the G77, as a topic that might not be a zero sum struggle, but actually that affects both the South and the North and that would positively uh, affect both the North and South in the case you are able to actually come up with a functioning global monetary constitution once more, something that could replace both Bretton Woods, but even more so the kind of non-system that has come to take over after the collapse of Bretton Woods. You know, like 
there's a vision here, and it's actively propagated by the G77 of you know, a global monetary reform that would leave everyone better off. Not so much a simple distributional struggle, but a win-win of you know, tackling runaway inflation together between the global South and the global North. Now, the global South arguably had more to gain from that, given of how much more devastating the inflation kind of was. But it was nonetheless not an act of sacrifice on the part of the global North that was imagined here. I think that's a kind of subtle, interesting difference from the NIO discussion. And it's partially response to you know, the kind of pushback that emerges in um, the second half of 74, 75 against the NIO. Right? So this emphasis on shared benefits rather than sacrifice becomes a kind of really important slogan in the second half of 1970s concerning the monetary questions. Key here for third world countries like Tanzania and Jamaica, which were leading NIEO advocates under their their leftist presidents, respectively, Michael Manley and Julius Nyeri, was IMF structural adjustment programs, whereby the IMF used sovereign debt as leverage to coerce poor countries to restructure their economies along neoliberal free market lines. And you write, quote, While the UN General Assembly had since been enlarged, the IMF continued to resemble a hierarchical world more akin to the Security Council. Although the Third World counted close to 100 countries that included more than two-thirds of the world's population, its cumulative voting share at the IMF amounted to no more than 35 percent, and thus less than the 40 percent of the five leading industrial powers alone. Was this ultimately the method through which colonial power was remade and I guess even laundered into a post-colonial world system, a system kept in place no longer through European direct rule, but instead through financial power, through through money? So I think two observations are important here. The first one is that it's a little misleading when we talk about the collapse of Bretton Woods, right? So what collapses is the overarching system that ties the dollar to gold and formally ties other currencies to the dollar. That goes... But there are a lot of other aspects that don't go, such as, for example, the IMF and the World Bank, you know, and that's actually quite peculiar. Like these are kind of like weird zombies of the Bretton Woods era that refused to die. And during the 1970s, we're looking for new roles to fulfill because the framework in which they had initially been embedded had disappeared. What also disappeared were the kind of obligations, political obligations that were part of Bretton Woods. But despite its imperfections, it was a political system where you could address grievances, where certain obligations you know, were specified. Once that is all gone, it also liberates individual membership con- member countries of the IMF to act in ways that would have been incompatible with the, with the Bretton Woods system. So you see a moment here of the IMF trying to redefine itself and of individual member countries, not least the U.S., trying to find a new path of financial hegemony in the ruins of Bretton Woods. This is how the IMF structural adjustment programs, this is how conditional lending first emerges as an attempt to exercise new forms of discipline in an informal system that is no longer characterized by formal political institutions, but instead by increasingly mobile capital, by extensive lending into developing countries. And most of that still conducted in the dollar, despite the fact that the US dollar is no longer formally 
the reserve currency of, of the world economy. Most of the lending that happens in the 1970s into the early 1980s is in dollars, right? So what we witness here is kind of first excitement almost on the part of recently decolonized countries that in some way, like something that had long been promised was now happening, like actual investment flowing from the North into the South. You know, that's exciting, particularly for governments who are trying to finance themselves or trying to come up with, with new um, forms of you know, financial independence. But much of that is denominated in dollars. And it's not entirely clear at the beginning what political repercussions that will have, but it will be extremely significant because A, it means that these countries are, are very vulnerable to movements in the exchange rates, right? So now the currencies are no longer tied to one another, but are freely floating, which is again, something that very few people would have foreseen, not at all obvious, but something that did emerge. Now, once these currencies are freely floating, but you have debt denominated in a different currency, you are very, very vulnerable to what's called a currency mismatch, where your assets and liabilities are in different currencies, and you can end up with enormous debt obligations that you are struggling to service out of your domestic currency. It also draws in the IMF as an agent of kind of lending enforcement, you know, debtor enforcement on the part of these countries that had so seemingly generously extended investment in the 1970s and 80s. So as things go sour, you see the IMF emerging as an entity that is trying to establish itself in order to manage the, this new world of international lending in a world of freely floating exchange rates and debt that is oddly still denominated in dollars, despite the fact that the dollar is no longer the official reserve currency of the world economy. And from the perspective of Julius Nyerere or Michael Manley, um, so from the perspective of Tanzania and Jamaica, two of the first countries to get a taste of that uh, structural adjustment program, it really feels a lot like the kind of you know, neo-colonial practices they had worried about. Right? It, it comes with draconian measures that try to implement discipline and try to essentially take control of um, domestic budgets and households, right? like some of the like, most politically touchy subjects there are in uh, statecraft. And it's clearly an agent on behalf of the creditors in the North. Furthermore, and this, this comes really to the fore in the late 1970s in a, a series of conferences in both Kingston, Jamaica, and Arusha, Tanzania, they are perfectly aware of the kind of depoliticizing rhetoric that the IMF is operating under at that point, claiming to simply be interested in kind of domestic adjustment and sidestepping questions of global political economy and the kind of messy non-system that had emerged after the end of Bretton Woods, claiming to simply be implementing best practice and sound economic management, um, when in fact, there is a lot of lack of discipline also in the global north. There is uh, a lot of discretion on the part of agents who claim to have no such discretion. And so that it immediately becomes a political battle over language and ideology again. Like, what is the political role of the IMF in these early structural adjustment programs? You know, how do we get beyond the kind of depoliticizing facade that is put up here? If Hayek is putting forward this vision of private money, the NIEO advocates who gather at Arusha 
in, in Tanzania in, the ni- in 1980 put forward a very different vision. The Arusha Declaration declares, quote, Money is power. Those who wield power control money. Those who manage and control money wield power. An international monetary system is both a function and an instrument of prevailing power structures. How did Arusha's vision of an equitable global monetary system compared to what Hayek was putting forward? Yeah, I think it is important to kind of see these two ends of the political spectrum of monetary imagination together as part of a struggle over the future of money in the course of the 1970s. And it really kind of happens in parallel. So we're now by like 79, 1980, Hayek is on one on the lecture circuit proposing and spreading his idea of the denationalization of money. And simultaneously you see Nirere and Manly coming together in, in Arusha and putting forward a very different political vision. Now, the first thing to say is it's important to, to distinguish the Arusha Declaration that you referred to from the more famous Arusha Declaration of, I think, 1967, which kind of, which Nerere established kind of principles of African socialism. This is, this is a different one. This is the same town, but we're in 1980. And Sometimes they refer to it as the Arusha Declaration, sometimes the Arusha Initiative. It's interestingly published, and I don't know whether Myrdal had a hand in this, but the proceedings are published in a Swedish journal called Development Dialogue. So the reason I, like, I was able to actually access these kind of archival materials is because it kind of was captured through Swedish foundations. Um, and Myrdal seemed to have had a hand in at least putting some people in touch. To compare it to Hayek, I think the most interesting thing is first, to acknowledge how much they share in their assessment. Like both actually acknowledge that money in the 1970s is a deeply political phenomenon, that there is an entwinement between the various entities that issue money and manage money and the kind of core interests, political interests of various states. Now Hayek draws from this the conclusion that we precisely need to take money out of the hands of government. We need to denationalize it. And that's where we get this vision of competing private currencies that you know, put forward you know, a political vision of removing governmental discretion from the issuance of money. Now, Nirere and Manly and the kind of participants of the Arusha Initiative share the first part of the analysis, namely that it is obvious that what's going on here is politics. Right? So when the IMF arrives and you know, demands structural adjustment, this isn't a kind of non-political technical process, but it's part of that global politics of money, which hangs together with questions of credit and debt relationships between the global north and the south, questions of inflation that are hanging over the 1970s. And anyone who denies that is clearly not acting in earnest. The view of what's wrong with money looks a lot different if you're in a country that really has no true monetary sovereignty because you're in the third world on the periphery of a world system controlled by others. Exactly. But you would, you don't think that it's a lack of politics. It's the yeah. lack of democratic ability to influence the kind of politics that smacks you in the face that, that you're pushing back against. It's not the idea that somehow a natural entity uh, confronts you. No, like it, you're perfectly aware that it's a global politics and a kind of politically structured system of how investment flows, 
which creditors are being protected, how the IMF, just based on voting rights, is able to go after some countries but not others. You're perfectly aware that it's politics that you're confronting. And the problem with that politics is it's shaped by a small group of countries in the global north with very predictable interests. And you're at the losing end of that. So the solution that's put forward in the Arusha Initiative is not to somehow in some kind of Hayekian fantasy to escape from that politics, but instead to democratize and globalize that politics. And that's how the Arusha Initiative links it to the idea of a kind of new Bretton Woods conference on the floor of the UN General Assembly, which has all these recently decolonized countries as equal member states, where you could actually engage in a good faith conversation about what a more democratic global monetary system could look like. So they're involved in an attempt to kind of change the politics that inheres in the global political system. But what they encounter is a denial of that politics, is a kind of agent in the form of the IMF that claims to not be political, not be involved in any of these kind of political struggle and tensions that shape the post Bretton Woods era. And Nereri, I think, is most innovative in this regard. He straightforwardly leaks internal IMF documents that show the kind of political deliberations that are taking part within the IMF about which options to take, what kind of choices to take, how to frame it in a depoliticized manner. You know, that's actually leaked by Nerere several times to the kind of real outrage and frustration on the part of the IMF during these negotiations. And so this is also part of unveiling your negotiating partner and revealing the bad faith of the person, of the entity you're negotiating with over structural adjustment programs. Why in the, the context of the power dynamics of the world system at the time, why was the third world unable to prevail, unable to overcome this depoliticization machine that was beginning to lock the neo-colonial world system in place? And then what was the new system that emerged from that historic defeat of the third world? Yeah, I think now we're moving into the 1980s and the way in which both Hayek's vision of private competing currencies was disappointed and the way in which the kind of uh, Arusha initiative was displaced. And I think the most obvious starting point for that is, again, to consider the kind of financial entities who did actually lend money in the 1970s in dollars to the global south. And I think in some way, these are the entities that are being protected here and that come to have an enormous influence on the kind of future shape that the global monetary system takes. Now, these are entities, you know, mostly financial entities in uh, the US and in the UK, lending in dollars, right? So not at all Hayek's private currency, but the currency of the US. They're interested in getting repaid and they're mobilizing the existing domestic and international institutions um, on their behalf. They also exercise pressure, which will become very important in the context of uh, Paul Volcker's role at the Federal Reserve concerning how to maintain the special status of the dollar in a world in which that is no longer insured through actual Bretton Woods agreements, but has to be maintained in some way by the market itself, by precisely these entities who lend to the global south in dollars. Right? So the dominance of the dollar, how to protect the special role of the dollar, and how to 
maintain the financial viability of financial actors in the global north who are really exposed to the global south really become two driving forces of that moment in the 1980s. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso's end-of-year sale is going on now with 40% off all books and merch until January 4th. One title you might like is Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough by Holly Jean Buck. Around the world, countries and companies are setting net zero carbon emissions targets. But focusing on emissions draws our attention away from the real problem, the point of production. The fossil fuel industry must come to an end but it will not depart willingly. Governments must intervene. By embracing a politics of rural-urban coalitions and platform governance, climate advocates can build the political power needed to nationalize the fossil fuel industry and use its resources to draw carbon out of the atmosphere. Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough by Holly Jean Buck, out now from Verso Books. You write, quote, The ad hoc system that emerged instead did not do away with the sovereign prerogative to issue money. Indeed, as the financial crisis revealed, in many ways it further strengthened it. But it self-consciously depoliticized the appearance of money and encouraged the development of a global monetary system based on the principle of capital mobility. Did this new order deliver, at least in part, what Hayek wanted? Because you write, quote, What won the day was a continuation of the ad hoc system of informal American global money and floating fiat currencies, but now operated by the semi-depoliticized technocratic rule of experts in formally independent central banks. I'm thinking back to my interview with Quinn Slobodian a while back on his book Globalists a couple years ago. Was what neoliberals wanted all along, despite all their pretense to libertarian anti-statism, is what they always wanted just to use the state to protect the economy? from democratic control? So yeah, there's, so there's a lot going on. Maybe the first observation, the first thing to say is that it takes quite a while for this picture to emerge, right? So it's a really messy experimental process on the part of many of the agents involved, not least Paul Volcker at the Fed, but also some of the intellectuals, you know, who are actually trying to position themselves and try to respond to this rapidly changing situation where, The Fed is now essentially hiking interest rates um, dramatically in the course of 1981, 1982. We're moving into a world of increasingly freely flowing capital. There's a kind of overall financialization that's going on. And so it takes, there's no no one with a blueprint who actually kind of wins the day and implements what they're doing. Instead, my, my writing is very much shaped by, on the one hand, Quinn's work, but also work by um, Greta Kripner, who wrote a fantastic book called Capitalizing on Crisis, articulating the kind of experimental responses that in some way produced financialization and produced some of the kind of more neoliberal aspects of financialization through politicians abrogating certain responsibilities and through actors like the Federal Reserve under Volcker coming up with various tactics in order to insulate themselves against democratic political pressure. Now, To bring it uh, back to neoliberalism, I think it's really interesting that you see a split emerge here between 
folks like Milton Friedman on the one hand and Hayek on the other hand. Friedman seems to fit much more your account of what's going on here. Friedman is actually very happy with the Federal Reserve stepping in through various forms of monetarism or other tools, some of them frankly quite kind of deceptive and manipulative, as long as they are able to use the state in order to reintroduce market discipline. Like his problem was that the 1970s were shaped by bad monetary policy. And what we need now is good monetary policy, ideally from his perspective, you know, led by monetarism and Volcker for a brief while, as I know you discussed also in your episode with, with Tim Barker, um, you know, does claim to follow a monetarist rule until it kind of doesn't produce the outcome he desires anymore. And he kind of gives away um, that tool in order to kind of hide behind something else. But Friedman essentially is comfortable with that experimental use of the state and the Federal Reserve's power in order to bring down inflation and reintroduce economic discipline. Hayek is much more interesting in the 1980s. So actually I looked through some more documents of his that are in his papers at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, his correspondence from the 80s, a couple of speeches he gives. And the first thing is, you notice from like 81 onwards, maybe already 80, he's very frank in describing his proposal for the denationalization of money as hopelessly utopian. He's perfectly aware that this will never be politically possible. In fact, there's a speech he gives to um, a group of visa card executives <laughs> in Athens, Greece in 1981 where he opens by describing that proposal as essentially almost a bitter joke, he says. They were like grown out of frustration and a certain kind of radicalization, he just tossed it out. He says like, this is not gonna happen. But nor does he kind of fall back on the previous position he held that all we need is simply better monetary policy. He claims that monetary policy has never done anything good. So there's no need for monetary policy. It's not a question of good or bad monetary policy. We have to get rid of monetary policy. At the same time, the denationalization of money, he now considers you know, impossible politically. So what he does instead from 81 to 85, 86, he tries to update his idea of competing currencies by adapting it to that rapidly changing reality. And the proposal he provides the visa executives, and this is a speech he gives several times in the 80s to various uh, groups of in particular banking executives in London who like to listen, um, is that he proposes essentially a system of competing units of accounts in the form of kind of bank overdrafts. So he says like the state can prohibit you from printing your own money, right? And so in that sense, the state will never give up that prerogative. If you try to kind of actually issue your own banknotes and have them circulate, you know, good luck. That's probably not gonna be possible. But the state can't control what exactly a bank does in the kind of accounts that it operates. Just as banks are able to essentially create credit and benefit from the kind of privatization of that ultimate public prerogative, so Hayek thinks they should be able to create accounts, but denominated not in dollars or pounds, but essentially in new currency units. So he tells these like, what prevents you from opening in like accounts? not denominated in existing currencies, but in your own currency. So you see him like thinking, he's, he kind of dismisses this idea, then he kind of comes up with a, a fix to it. And he's kind of 
asking for input. He claims that he already has an idea for how this should be branded, but it would be millions of dollars worth. And so he can't tell them what the name would be because he has been advised by intellectual property rights lawyers that he can't protect it. But he's, he's cooking up this scheme of how to hold on to the promise of the denationalization of money, but no longer in the form of actual banks printing their own money, but using some of the tools of financialization, essentially, using some of the kind of proliferating credit card companies that he's lecturing to, using some of the kind of tools that banks are uh, using already in the 1980s. And did Hayek at the time see the rise of private credit as achieving, not only laying the, the groundwork for these privately created bank currencies, but just in and of itself, private credit achieving some of the same ends as private money? This is where we come back to why Hayek is laughing in the end, nonetheless. So Hayek, on the one hand, does think that even the extension of globally flowing credit, like basically the kind of euro dollar market, like the kind of credit that, that, that flows beyond the reach of states, is something that at least begins to approximate his vision of how to not quite denationalize money, but at least tie the hands of the sovereigns, right? And he's strongly in support of this. He's kind of cheering on these visa executives to keep on doing what they're doing. And, you know, looks uh, positively towards the developments. He nonetheless thinks that's not enough. He thinks like inflation might be down now, he says in 85, you know, after the kind of US has kind of ridden through the kind of Volcker-induced inflation. It's like, okay, things are better now than they were 10 years ago when I first proposed this. And you might think we've solved this. You might think inflation is now gone and we can just continue doing what we're doing. He says, you'd be foolish. You know, we actually need to fix this in a more comprehensive manner. So that points for him towards not just issuing private credit, but issuing private credit and opening accounts in these new units. So he thinks people haven't gone far enough. Like they need to be more radical in what they're doing. But he is excited about the private credit. Yes, yes. <laughs> Stepping back on that point for a moment, you write, quote, if the new politics of disinflation self-consciously imposed constraints on collective bargaining and real wage growth, it simultaneously opened the taps of private consumer credit. And I think you're suggesting here that this rollback in worker power on the one hand and the opening up of private consumer credit on the other was not a coincidence. How did these two things emerge and function in tandem? Yeah, again, I'm, I'm drawing here on Greta Krippner's work, which is fantastic in this regard. And I don't want to be misread as making some kind of causal claim that one is a kind of coordinated response to the other. Instead, again, this in the context of really messy experimental politics. But I think one insight that does emerge is that the deregulation of finance seems to be a solvent politically that at the very least postpones and potentially even partially displaces certain really troubling distributional conflicts that seem to have characterized the 1970s, right? If the 1970s are shaped by worries about essentially an overburdened political system that is struggling to adjudicate between conflicting distributional claims, financial markets, in particular deregulation and the kind of opening tap of credit, seems to buy at least you know, some room of maneuver out of this, whereby on the one hand, you gain you know, the kind of what is seen as kind of efficiency gains of 
greater freedom of capital mobility, greater ease of financial institutions to produce um, various financial products and so on, which all goes under the rubric of kind of liquidity and efficiency improvements. But these seem to be, from a more political perspective, also feed back into politics by responding to the kind of real experience of stagnant wage growth, whereby essentially, you know, a political system that had come to rely on economic growth and an expectation of improvement during the 1950s and 60s, and then it ran into crisis because stagflation revealed that process to be disrupted. In that context, access to cheap credit comes to be seen for a while. And this, I think, extends quite a bit into the 90s, you know, like longer than we might think initially. This is, this is not just the 1980s. It comes to be seen for quite a while as a way to navigate that particular impasse of financialized capitalism. Greater access to credit will provide some workaround, at least temporarily, um, around lagging and stagnant wage growth. This displacement then, the expansion of credit to compensate for, for wage stagnation, this is what facilitates the great moderation's hegemony and the resulting depoliticization of money up until the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, so the great moderation is usually thought of as a kind of macroeconomic phenomenon where we think of a system of inflation targeting by independent central banks as having conquered the problem of inflation. And on that basis, having developed essentially a macroeconomic toolkit for how to smooth out business cycles, for how to stabilize the economy. And that's all part of um, the picture. But I think what's also absolutely crucial is what happens on the kind of capital mobility front and what happens on the credit front. So this is underwritten first by a really unprecedented removal of various forms of essentially obstacles to international capital mobility. In the 1970s, capital mobility is essentially a very, very marginal phenomenon. Um, Bretton Woods had stringent capital controls in place. And in the 1970s, it's maybe you know, the US, Germany, partially Japan who are interested in this, but a large number of countries, obviously in the global south, but in particular also in Europe, you know, France most notably, are strongly opposed to capital mobility. That has changed entirely by the late 1980s. Right? So by the late 1980s and in the early 90s in the Maastricht Treaty, capital mobility is one of the freedoms that is written into the constitution of Europe. You know, so, so we're living in a completely different world now, which capital mobility is seen as an integral part of this picture of the great moderation, you know, the efficient allocation of capital and its ability to flow. And domestically, that partially means that if you look towards the benefits of the great moderation, Know, and you're looking towards your wage alone, you might be missing out on other benefits that are meant to accrue to you through this greater access to cheap credit, right? So yes, your wage might not have improved as much as it did, let's say, during the 1960s. But on the other hand, look at the kind of mortgages you can now get. You know, look at the kind of financial products you can now buy uh, as an investor. And so this is all part of a kind of broadening of finance into parts of society that um, you know really were not part of the, the equation beforehand. And it makes not only the NIEO impossible, but also social democratic experiments in the global north. And you mentioned France, like under Mitterrand, Im impossible as well. Absolutely, absolutely. The other thing, and this actually is a nice hook back to the crypto conversation, 
this sometimes happened under the idea of you know democratizing access to credit but like in the us context most notably you know you you get a kind of potted history of how you move from redlining and an explicit inability of african american households to access credit of any form you know which is a really really important part of the story of the racial wealth gap in the us to a much more questionable historical claim that somehow the kind of financialization and access to credit that we've witnessed since the 80s and 90s is meant to overcome that or should be seen as somehow an overcoming or recompense for the previous exclusion. And the idea of kind of the democratization of finance, to use that term that's floating around here, is to move from exclusion to inclusion, right? So households who are previously excluded, either based on straightforward discrimination or because of, you know, credit scores or other forms of exclusion are now explicitly included in this realm of credit uh, creation. And as a result, this is something that the Democratic Party also embraces, right? You can see how that's a narrative that, that would work well, electorally speaking. And you see the narrative again today, I think, in the crypto realm, where part of the slogans that accompany this kind of sales pitch of crypto and the sales pitch of new investment opportunities is to democratize finance. Right? This is the kind of Robin Hood phenomenon where somehow you know, anyone can be a day trader, anyone can buy these assets, anyone can own some crypto, and someone who's excluded is now included, and we should celebrate this as the democratization of finance. Now, what that story obviously neglects is that we're talking here about the realm of credit and capital, and credit and capital don't operate on the basis of equal inclusion. Instead, to be included means very little if the kind of credit you have access to is inferior to the access of credit that others have. It's more like what Kianga Yamada-Taylor calls predatory inclusion. Exactly. That's exactly what we're witnessing here. It's inclusion, but on an unequal and, in fact, predatory footing, which is entirely invisible if you only focus on exclusion versus inclusion. But you know, credit, I think it's hard to find a better example than credit, where it's so obvious that you start from an unequal basis, right? Like your credit score and the conditions of lending are determined by your collateral, right? So it's those who are in greatest need of credit who will also, by definition, get the worst terms of credit as long as that credit is privately provided, right? So it's entirely obvious of why inclusion alone won't be sufficient for an attempt at you know, equalization or democratization. And the same is true with capital, you know, where you know, those who have already access to capital have an entirely different attitude to risk that comes from these extremely volatile investments than someone who you know, puts the entire kind of household saving into some Robin Hood account and then suddenly loses all of it. You know, like we're talking about fundamentally unequal starting points that actually get compounded by that form of predatory inclusion rather than overcome. You write, quote, as the world's central banks and treasuries had to step into the breach in 2008 to undertake sprawling rescue actions to prevent an imminent collapse of the global financial system, the crisis revealed the widely held belief of money as neutral as an illusion. It's sort of obvious, but pretty important. How did the financial crisis and the political responses to it upset that prevailing status quo ideology of what money was, that depoliticized era of money? I mean, it's it's hard to almost imagine now, uh, given the impact of the financial crisis, 
given the monetary measures during COVID of the last year, going into the financial crisis, essentially most models by economists, like, and I'm talking about the kind of models used uh, in order to uh, make really important macroeconomic decisions, as well as the models used by financial institutions to model various scenarios, essentially did not include money, <laughs> did not include banks, or banks in as far as they appeared were purely financial intermediaries rather than entities of credit creation. But there was there was very little kind of modeling of um, you know, the much more complicated role of money and money markets. So this wasn't just like a popular depoliticization of money. This was within mainstream economics. Exactly. I think that it's important to hold these two things together, like the way in which that kind of neutralization of money within economics was actually mirrored and compounded a kind of larger neutralization of money in the kind of public consciousness, which was part of, I think, the kind of narrative of the great moderation where essentially money had been artificially, illegitimately politicized during the 1970s. And the independence of inflation targeting central banks was precisely to make sure that politics was kept at a distance from money. Right? So that picture of money actually kind of connects the models and the kind of you know broader neutralization of money in the public imagination, because money is seen as the kind of neutral technical uh, medium that somehow is best kept away from politics and doesn't have any politics itself uh, in it. You know, it's totally removed from questions of power and anything like that. Um, so that's I think the the image that that really was quite dominant going into the crisis. You write that the crisis revealed that central banks, quote, had become central planners that dare not speak their name. The newly visible agency of central banks uncomfortably raised the possibility of political choices in a system that was supposedly without alternatives. And yet, at the same time, quote, if money turned out to be more political than many had come to had come to assume, the crisis also rapidly undermined any presumption that money was still straightforwardly privy to the sovereignty of states and accountable to politics. Currency had in large parts been replaced by private global money. How did these two seemingly contradictory things, revelations, play out? One, that central bankers were extremely powerful and almost entirely unaccountable financial architects of the global economy, but then that two, a massive private global financial system had emerged that operated outside of the bounds of government or any sort of popular democratic power. Again, I think this is something that is so crucial to the way we look at central banks now that it's worth kind of spelling that out. And it's a a weird two-step. The first moment is simply the realization of the enormous power that central bankers do have, right? Like the amount of discretion that exists. Um, you know, the, among the books on the financial crisis, you find this recounted in, in numerous episodes. Um, but, but one of them is, for example, Ben Bernanke being pressed on TV um, after the bailout of uh, AIG, the insurance uh, giant, of where exactly that money had come from. You know, like, was it taxpayer money? Who authorized, who in Congress authorized him writing that check? And he just kind of, he has this odd moment on TV. I think it's 60 Minutes, like on CBS. And it's like, well, we don't print money. Like, 
we use the computer. We just add zeros. <laughs> and so, you know, that's something that is, I think, shocking initially to the general public who's been told to live, you know, in a regime of austerity and economic discipline, like a kind of there is no alternative um, context of neoliberalism in which essentially we're told. And this constant metaphor that the government is akin to a family balancing its checkbook around the kitchen table. Exactly. Everyone has to tighten their bells. You know, we all need to balance our budgets. You know, don't overspend just as the government shouldn't overspend. Right? That was the narrative. There is no alternative. There is no discretion. Instead, it turns out, you know, Ben Bernanke can just add zeros on a computer. Right? And that is true. Like nothing, none of the stuff afterwards about, you know, the, how the role of central banks is also extremely hemmed in changes that. It is true that the central bank, unlike any other entity, can just simply create money printing zeros. The closest other entities that are able to engage in this phenomenon are banks, like through credit creation, when they, you know, essentially open accounts or create overdrafts or extend loans, you know, that is pretty close to this, but they are relying on certain market conditions for doing so, right? Like what makes the crisis a crisis is that the Fed needs to step in as the, not just lender of last resort, but as the provider of liquidity of last resort. Right? Like ultimately, the state is able to do that at any point in time, unlike the banks, which are kind of operating in a slightly more complicated context. Now, that's the revelation. That's the sense which is all the more true today than it was in 2009, that central bankers really do engage in discretionary choices, that they can choose to do one thing or another, most obviously in the context of bailouts, but even in the context of um, you know, inflation targeting and interest rate setting regimes, right? That's, again, something that might seem obvious today, but it took a couple of years for actually, first of all, the wider public to appreciate this and for central bankers to come, to come on board with this. Like even up to this point, I think the Fed is skirmish around the idea that they're doing anything political, despite the fact that they're kind of coming up with new policy regimes that patently changes who exactly is affected by various decisions, right? So it becomes increasingly harder to deny that you are engaged in a purely neutral, non-distributive, technocratic activity. That becomes essentially a fiction that can't be sustained anymore. And that was particularly tough for the European Central Bank. It was particularly tough for the European Central Bank, which is, you know, characterized by tensions within it between the different member states, you know, where the, the Bundesbank has a very different vision of what the responsibilities and tasks of the European Central Bank should be compared to, let's say, you know, Greece, which finds itself in an immediate kind of crisis. You, know, you can see these kind of conflicting, not just demands, but conceptions of uh, monetary policy and monetary politics um, come to the fore there. Absolutely. Was this indictment of intertwined state and corporate power, this indictment not of capitalism, but of a perverted form of crony capitalism created by both corporate greed and an overweening state? Is it that kind of framework, that framework that emerges from this contradictory revelation of both powerful central banks and this massive private global financial system unaccountable to the public, is that what makes the crisis so congenial to the libertarian right initially? Because ultimately, there were left and liberal responses, 
Occupy and then Bernie. Today we have Bidenomics and MMT. But initially it was the Tea Party, which simultaneously condemned both bankers and the phantasm of of underwater homeowners getting government bailouts they didn't deserve. That wasn't real, but that phantasm was was very real to Tea Partiers. It was that that came first, and that had serious and permanent consequences under Obama. Yeah, this is a great observation. This is the kind of the two-step of this contradictory moment, because we're not just simply in Hayek's world where the state can do whatever they want. Like in Hayek's picture, as sketched in the denationalization of money, we have this omnipotent government that you know, is essentially wielding its power without constraint. And that's kind of tempting to conclude when you first see Bernanke admit that he has the power to kind of add zeros, right? It looks like initially, this is the moment in which the state makes its comeback. I think the best account of this is in Adam Tooze's uh, book on the crisis crashed, where he kind, of, he kind of initially leads you on to think that you're witnessing the return of the state. That what you're seeing here is the kind of sto- the sovereign stepping back in, bailing out banks and saving the day. But Adam Tooze brilliantly flips this around by saying it's not entirely clear when you actually like pause for a moment who the sovereign is here. So you have to imagine, you know, like Goldman Sachs or AIG sitting on the other side of the table, but negotiating with Hank Paulson or, or Tim Geithner who are coming from the same kind of networks, the same kind of bank to financial regulator uh, revolving door, it's not clear at that point anymore that you simply have the return of, you know, the American people or the sovereign. Instead, you know, the logic of the bailouts is, as again, you know, described and crashed, that you got to make them as appetizing as possible. You got to make it so appealing to take these bailout funds that no one says no, right? So this is, this is um, as one of the uh, officials involved describes this, so it's the opposite of the Sopranos or the Godfather, right? This is an offer that is so good, you know, you really can't refuse it because it's actually genuinely appealing. And in that moment, the banks essentially get what they want, you know, in the US, the, the constraints that are slapped on them in terms of bonus payments and dividends, are so minimal and so ridiculous that you really come away thinking of this as not as a return of the state or the sovereign, but instead a kind of coalescing of this network between the kind of Federal Reserve-driven monetary state and the Wall Street-based banks that are requiring the bailouts. It's that image that I think you know really differs from Hayek's sketch and that triggers off both the Tea Party on the right and Occupy on the left. And to bring us full circle, it turns out you write that Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous creator of of Bitcoin, posted the proposal for Bitcoin on November 1st, 2008, just weeks after Lehman Brothers collapsed, Lehman Brothers collapsed. And he included a rather revealing message. And I found this really, really fascinating. He included this message with the code appended to the code of the first Bitcoin block. It read, quote, The Times, referring to the newspaper, I assume. 03 Jan 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. That's it. And so months before CNBC commentator Rick Santelli on February 19th, 2009, issued his Tea Party-sparking so-called rant heard around the world, months before that, we had Bitcoin 
and Nakamoto's Kurt post, even though most of us weren't paying attention to that at the time. But but I think this is really important. These were the seeds of what would become a dominant popular response to the crisis that we see today, a reactionary response to this repoliticization of money with arguably a lot more staying power than the Tea Party's Coke-inspired brand of libertarianism did. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of even crazier than this, because it's not just kind of something that is announced alongside the kind of launch of Bitcoin, but given the way in which blockchain works, given that this is embedded in the so-called genesis block of Bitcoin, it's actually part of every single Bitcoin transaction, right? Like it's part of the Bitcoin blockchain. So at the very beginning, if you actually trace through the Bitcoin blockchain, is a headline from the London Times about the Chancellor of the Exchequer bailing out banks. That's the kind of rallying cry under which initially the, the trustless currency that promises us a new future of money beyond politics and beyond banks is announced. And I think it's absolutely crucial to perceive that promise of an independence from trust in the context of the kind of collapse of trust, the financial crisis, and the collapse of kind of political trust in, you know, the kind of democratic institutions who responded through bailouts. And so that, I think that's absolutely part of the political ideology that's there from the beginning. You write, quote, where Hayek could innocently think of banks as ideal tools for the privatization of money, from Nakamoto's perspective at the height of the financial crisis, banks were just as tainted as governments. After all, banks had failed to function as intended, instead bringing the financial system within inches of fatal collapse. Even worse, as the waves of bailout proved, it was not entirely obvious that banks issuing credit were indeed fully private institutions. What I'm reading here about Nakamoto's perspective as this is playing out is something that we see today with with meme stocks like the GameStop stock that was inflated by traders on the Wall Street Bet subreddit, this convergence of libertarian free market capitalism and a populist anti-bank politics. And I think that is the biggest difference to Hayek, right? So it's it's very tempting to draw a direct line from Hayek to crypto. It's very tempting to see him as kind of ultimately lurking behind this or to detect in at least the promises of crypto, a realization of the denationalization of money. The biggest difference here is the role of banks. The banks are the heroes in both Hayek's original 1976 pamphlet and in his subsequent attempts to make this actually practicable. Um, It's literally two banks that he's announcing his latest sketches and proposals. These are the people who are meant to come to our rescue. That has changed completely by 2008, you know, by the time which Nakamoto or the kind of the group of people who call themselves Nakamoto actually come together and basically, and I think in a move that's fundamentally correct, understand that the banking system is not separate from the state, right? Like that's actually something that uh, scholars of, of money, in particular legal theorists, legal historians of money have taught us extensively over the last 10 years, that it's really a mistake to think of banks as simply private corporations. Instead, they're like much more like franchisees of a kind of public prerogative. You know, they are operating in a very tightly regulated space uh, in which they are allowed to to distribute essentially a public good, credit, through private means, but are also tied um, through various obligations in doing so. 
So they're intimately backed by the Federal Reserve, the central bank. Um, they are, you know, part of a certain kind of state and bank nexus. In some way, Bitcoin correctly diagnoses this, that it is futile to kind of play the banks against the state, since not just through ownership in 2009, but even outside of times of crises, the two are actually deeply connected to one another. There's obviously a libertarian heritage here, a a neoliberal heritage in particular, but there's also a whole world of, of techno ideology that infuses Bitcoin culture. You write, quote, From the beginning, Bitcoin presented itself in the garb of a transformative utopian project with roots in cypherpunk, anarchist, and libertarian promises of technology. And as communications scholar Finn Burden put it, and I'm going to read from him at length here, quote, It was to be a future that digital currency would not just occupy, but have a role in bringing about a new society of networked anonymity, pseudonymity, and privacy, the cypherpunks hoped. Their contemporary fellow travelers, a philosophical subculture called the Extropians, hoped for far more. They saw themselves not in the twilight of ruin, riding out the failure of the modern order, but as the accelerant of a new age of post-human flourishing to come. They would underwrite and prototype new forms of politics, new forms of markets, and new ways of living and dying. The groups had a lot of overlap in membership and interest in mailing lists, but For the extropians, digital currency didn't just aid in the creation of a newly private society and its secret markets. It would spur new economic systems, which would in turn accelerate innovation, discovery, and invention into a cascade of breakthroughs that would ultimately lead to ultra-longevity, off-planet migration, robust general artificial intelligence, and the end of the human condition as we know it. It's pretty heady stuff. (laughs) And (laughs) my my question is, to, to what degree... Has that cypherpunk heritage, and really more generally, the entire 60s counterculture-derived cyberculture that I discussed with Fred Turner a while back, to what degree has all of that influenced today's reigning crypto culture and ideology? And to what extent is it drawing on Hayekian neoliberalism? Does it all add up to a new cypher neoliberalism popular ideology that that's heavily informed by, but maybe can't be reduced to those predecessor ideologies? Because after all, there are tons of people today, tons, who haven't read Hayek and probably have no clue who the extropians were, but they're buying tons of crypto and they are buying for sure the ideology that surrounds it. Yeah. So I think we should list anonymity alongside the changing world of banks as a second feature that really marks off kind of the kind of early cryptographic community that is interested in cypherpunk and the very early forms of kind of digital money that that Finn Brunton uh, covers so so brilliantly from the Hayekian vision. Again, there's very little discussion of anonymity in Hayek. I don't think there's a single mention, in fact, of anonymity being one of the core values to be protected here. It's about competition. It's about freedom, less about anonymity. By the time of the 80s and 90s, um, when you begin, I think in parallel and quite separate, to see, you know, at least speculative science fiction attempts to think through new forms of digital money or money, new forms of money for the cyberspace, anonymity, or at least pseudonymity is absolutely crucial. And again, it's no surprise that that will be one of the kind of core features that is flagged by the early, you know, Bitcoin community. 
And you know, it's something that you don't need to have read Finn Brunton's book for in order to have an intuitive grasp of. You know? um, anonymity um, alongside that promise of decentralization seem to be the kind of you know, major ideological engines of a lot of what we're witnessing today. Now, where I get interested in this is in interrogating the plausibility of that vision by the time we're actually talking about Bitcoin, right? So it's one thing to follow these kind of early crypto communities in the 90s and 2000s and dig into their utopian imaginary. It's another thing to actually kind of look at what happens on the ground once we actually have something that looks like and presents itself as cryptocurrency. I think it's fair to say that there are some aspects in which, like with the term currency, as we discussed, you know, that older heritage or that kind of invented tradition is held up for, you know, straightforwardly, you know, self-serving regulatory purposes. And I think something similar could be said for anonymity, where, you know, one of the main advantages for why people actually did use Bitcoin early on, not as a speculative asset, but actually in order to transfer money is precisely because it allowed you to transfer money in context in which that was illegal to do so. That could be because, you know, you were actually involved in illicit activity, but it could also, as I think was- Shopping quite... on Silk Road. <laughs> exactly. There are a lot of examples of like the, the dark web and, you know, like, and Silk Road as parts of the cyberspace that couldn't use existing governmentally issued currencies, but had to rely, or at least found it very attractive to use anonymous or pseudonymous um, new forms of money. But it could also be in the context of capital controls, right? Like, so China, for example, one of the few countries in the world that did not do fully away with capital controls, it's still extremely hard to move Yuan out of China. And actually, that was one of the really significant uses of Bitcoin for many years. And one of the reasons why the Chinese Communist Party has cracked down so hard against it more recently, not because they're worried about the kind of risk profile of Chinese investors, maybe that also to some extent, but primarily because it allows essentially people to move their money abroad outside of China. And so that anonymity isn't a kind of utopian cyberpunk idea anymore, but it has very concrete consequences in terms of allowing you to engage in transactions that you would otherwise be prohibited from engaging from. Another point of comparison that I think illuminates illuminates how much things have changed over just the past decade, I think, is to look at conservative libertarian Ron Paul. He was considered the godfather of the Tea Party, and his first of three bids for the Republican presidential nomination was in 2008, right amid the beginning of the financial crisis. And central to each campaign, of course, was his demand to abolish the Federal Reserve and reestablish the gold standard. And today, I would imagine that many former Ron Paul supporters are cryptocurrency fanatics. That's a guess, but I my hunch is that I'm right. Is cryptocurrency private? money, gold bug type politics, but without the gold? And if so, what does that mean? Because gold bugs have always insisted that the full faith and credit of the U.S. government wasn't enough to base money on. We needed something purportedly transcendent, whose value was purportedly transcendent, like gold. What does it reveal about the changing popular politics of private money if gold has been supplanted by digital currency, backed by nothing at all beyond the collective effervescence of its buyers. 
So first of all, I think there is a very strong analogy to be drawn, in particular in the negative. It's exactly in this rejection of the post-1971 world of money. And it's not just simply fiat money, but it's a kind of quite profound political theoretical change. But in some way, for the first time ever, money in nowhere in the world is based on metal. As a result, it is a political project and it's up to us to govern it. And so your conceptions of what politics is capable of, what democratic politics looks like, what democratic politics should look like, what the role of the state is, immediately becomes part of this. And it's no surprise that it kind of fractures ideologically. And the gold bug response, I think does share with the kind of Bitcoin bug response, a fundamental rejection of that kind of emancipatory democratic promise that we can rule ourselves here. That this is something that we can impose on ourselves and govern rather than having to be imposed on us by some kind of natural or divine force. It's a, ultimately a kind of anxiety about human powers, which is quite interesting. You know, it's, a, it's not so much a belief that these powers don't exist, but it's precisely because they are all too real and all too tangible that you want to deny the exercise of those powers, which is a very different, I think, problem to pose. Instead, it's in rejection, anxious rejection, of an actual politics of money that could govern itself, ideally democratically, that you see attempts to root value in something real, quote unquote. Now, for us, it might look like gold is more material, more real than Bitcoin, but I think actually that analogy breaks down very quickly. On the one hand, why does gold have value? But there's nothing natural about it having value. It's simply a social convention. It probably has a healthy dose of theology uh, and aesthetics built in there. Fundamentally kind of irrational on top of that, right? It's, it's not obvious that you know, this is something that has intrinsic value. On the other side, Bitcoin, you know, unlike other cryptocurrencies, actually does, hard -bake, does have a hard-baked constraint built into its very coding, which is that only 21 million Bitcoins can ever exist. I think right now we're at something like 18 million, right? so there are three more million to mine, and then that's it. There are no more Bitcoins to be mined. And from the perspective of the kind of gold bug or Bitcoin bug, that scarcity actually ensures um, a certain lack of control, right? like no one will be able to tamper with this. I mean, I recently saw an interview of the Winklevoss twins who were asked to precisely compare their investment in crypto compared to gold. And their argument was that they are very skeptical about gold because they were really worried that Elon Musk might mine gold off some asteroid, in which case the gold supply will double. Whereas they say that can't happen with Bitcoin. Elon Musk can't mess up the supply of Bitcoin. Hence, if you are a gold bug, no, you should convert to become a Bitcoin bug. Right. Because it's actually just about it being unchangeably, permanently deflationary. It is entirely beyond human control. <laughs> like we've tied our hand indefinitely. No one, not even Elon Musk, is able to undo that and increase the number of blockchains that could ever be created in the case of Bitcoin. This is a big question to ask in such a cursory fashion. But given that money is political and given that it's been repoliticized since the 2008 financial crisis, what sort of money 
should the left be fighting for? How should the left be engaging in this moment of repoliticized money? Because I think we were a little late to the game. So this, I just finished a book on the political theory of money where I kind of, I tried to grapple with this a little bit. It's mostly a kind of genealogy of stepping back and understanding exactly where our conceptions of money came from, where the stuff that we see and what we don't see when we look at money comes from. But I think ultimately question that emerges from this is a question concerning the democratization of money. I think in order to do so, you need to actually clear the ground a little bit beforehand. One of the most fundamental things to take on board in order to begin to think about the democratization of money is to realize how misleading it actually is to talk about the depoliticization or repoliticization of money, but even in the way in which kind of we've casually done, or like trying to think of different decades as reflecting the politicization or depoliticization of money. Because ultimately what that implicitly assumes is that money is something that can be re or depoliticized. Whereas I'm firmly convinced that's actually a mistaken starting point. Instead, money is always political. So what is being depoliticized here? It's not money itself. Money is always political, but it's the appearance of money that is being depoliticized. Or in other words, very often what we mean by the depoliticization of money is its de-democratization. So when we talk about the 1980s as a period of the depoliticization of money, like we would have to correct that, I think, in two ways. First, to talk about the politics of depoliticization, kind of to study the ways in which thinking within the Fed, thinking, um, you know, not least by Paul Volcker, is deeply political in order to create a new appearance of money that seems to be beyond politics, whereas, in fact, it's deeply political all the way through. Secondly, that proceeds by precisely removing money, not from politics, but from democracy. Once we've taken that on board, I think it becomes a lot easier and straightforward to begin to pose the question of what it could mean to inquire into more democratic forms of money. Now, it's absolutely not easy. It's, a, it's probably one of the hardest questions we can ask today, but it's a really important question and we, we got to go there. For me, what it means is to move away from simply talking about re-politicization, depoliticization, and to begin to analyze both the actual decision-making structures within central banks and to begin to analyze the kind of monetary system that includes private actors or seemingly private actors and the central bank as we have it right now. So to begin to think about where does credit creation actually take place? Who has the right to create money right now? and on what basis. And so these would be two starting points um, you know, that I would put forward to begin to think about the democratization of money, to think of central banks as institutions that we can actually democratize, right? Without me now kind of putting forward a specific blueprint, there are lots of interesting proposals out there about what a more democratic central bank could look like, you know, where you have, for example, representatives of labor on the kind of relevant committees rather than just uh, representatives of capital. You can think about different um, decision-making structures. You can even think about thinking of, you know, you can even think about central banks as being based on entirely different legislative chambers that are more democratic, right? Like all of that is better, I think, than misleadingly reducing the repoliticization of central banks to simply tethering central banks to, let's say, the Congress as itself an institution that is probably lacking in democratic legitimacy. 
So instead, we can actually think about democratic central banks in a number of interesting ways that are going beyond simply yoking them back into the existing political system. And secondly, we got to talk about who is able to provide credit, like whether we need to complement private credit creation and private credit provision through more public credit creation, whether you know, we need to rethink the kinds of power relationships that currently allow banks to extend credit without any meaningful obligations. That's, I think, the other conversation, that to actually rethink the entire monetary system on more democratic terms, rather than simply through the lens of liquidity. Obviously, on the left, we're not rooting for the Fed to hike interest rates to deal with inflation. That would be a disaster for working class power, just as it was with, with Volcker. But, but at the same time, and I asked Tim Barker this as well, so much liquidity was going into real estate and stock prices. And even the money going directly into people's pockets gets spent as consumption of goods produced by capitalist firms, by and large. And so it's going to corporate profits and to the explosive appreciation of assets, including of socially socially useless and even harmful assets like Bitcoin. Is part of the solution to think not just about how much liquidity is getting created by central banks, but more precisely where that money is being spent with spending more directly on universal decommodified services like healthcare and public transit and say on the green energy transition, would that be a better way to ensure that the state-backed liquidity funds human flourishing instead of oligarchic enrichment? The first step would simply be to acknowledge that we are not dependent on these banks for investments great. If they want to join us, good. But we, we need to get out of a situation which we're essentially blackmailed by entities that are meant to serve us, that we have created. Right? Like we need to redraw these banking charters to ensure that they are aligned with our incentives. And actually, one, I think, effective way to get there might be to simply lead the way through more public provision of money, like in the form of, for example, you know, central bank issued uh, digital currencies, but also in the form of um, other, you know, postal banking initiatives or public credit creation in other forms. You know, that's actually, I think, a much more effective way to escape the blackmailing kind of hostage situation that we're in right now, rather than to continue to appeal at the kind of sense of banks and try to appeal at the kind of ethical behavior and try to appeal at the kind of greater self-interest. Like we need to actually have tools in our hands to get banks to change their behavior. Now, the other side of the question is what to do essentially about speculative behavior. I think that's actually slightly different from where we find the resources to spend on the things we care about. Again, I don't think we need banks for that. I'm not even sure we need the kind of private investors for that. If we are begging them in order to finally allow us to kind of fund the Green New Deal and fund all these things that we desperately need, well, we're going to wait for too long and we're going to get too little. Instead, the question of you know, financial inclusion and speculation comes down much more again to the question of how predatory is that inclusion? Like who actually loses in the end? Is this simply a speculative you know, gambling process through which hedge funds somehow you know, diversify the exposure, or are there actually a substantial number of people who are very, very exposed to financial risks that they either don't understand or don't control, and who are at serious, serious risk of hardship as a result of this? 
You know, that's, I think, a very different question. But we should, we should disentangle the two. They don't have to be part of the same question. Well, Stefan Eich, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Stefan Eich is a professor of government at Georgetown University and the author of the forthcoming book, The Currency of Politics, The Political Theory of Money, From Aristotle to Keynes, out in May from Princeton University Press. I also put a link to Stefan's chapter on cryptocurrency in the show notes. I do recommend that you read it. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, under their money form, all commodities look alike. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts. And then please subscribe. If it is on iTunes or some such platform, please also rate and review us. Those high ratings and good reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling people the old-fashioned way that you like the podcast, they'll probably like the podcast, that they should try listening to the podcast, etc. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Music